politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow forgotten American patriots to the one and only Conservative Review podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, in our quarantine center here at Conservative Review on Thursday. We are back in the house. Um, I'm telling you guys, even just to be away for one, one and a half days was tough for me. Um, thanks for all your thoughts and prayers on, uh, you know, our family losing my uncle. Um, I drove for nine and a half hours yesterday, just all in one day there and back to and from the funeral, uh, really gives you just a perspective on life. You know, when you, whenever you see a casket lowered into a grave and, you know, you help shovel the dirt, it, it certainly reminds you of our purpose here on this earth. And we have a reason of being here and, you know, spewing nonsense and politics is certainly not worth it in the scheme of things. And that's why you guys could always count on me to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God, simply because this world is temporary. Why spend it pandering? Why spend it covering for a specific person? And if I'm going to spend the bulk of my day doing this for a living, well, I'm going to speak what I think is right, irrespective of political party, who's the leader. I'm not going to cover or carry water for anyone. Another just important lesson <clears throat> I learned, you know, as everyone's panicking over this and the world is shutting down, the country is shutting down, the economy is shutting down. Do remember it's temporary. <clears throat> and more importantly, I think we all need to remember that while you should never take this lightly and you do what is common sense to, you know, err on the side of caution, when hopefully this will only be for a few weeks as the weather gets warmer. Just remember, God is in control ultimately. I mean, ultimately, if it's your time to die, it's your time to die. I mean, this is the balance of God giving us the tools of nature to do what's prudent and what makes sense, but not to go overboard beyond that. And that's the thing. You have people that die in the freakiest ways, just out of nothing. And then you have people that survive everything. We, we saw that with Ryan Newman at the Daytona 500, just surviving that crash that seemed utterly impossible for any human being to come out alive. He you know, poses for a picture with his two daughters walking out of the hospital on his two feet two days later. So, you know, that that's what I learned. This um, my uncle had the form of brain cancer that uh, Ted Kennedy and John McCain had. Typically, they give you six to 12 months to live. It's incurable. He hung on for four and a half years, four and a half years. You know, there's just no rhyme or reason. Sometimes it's just your time to go, and sometimes it's not, and sometimes you get longer. So that's that's the thing. You you do everything you can, you know, like my father did with him. He took such great care of him. He didn't have any family of his own, and he tried to get the best doctors and really keep on top of it. But ultimately, it's up to God. Now, obviously, I, I talk about this all the time, whether 
whether it's natural disasters, whether it's, in this case, a pandemic, whether it is a mass shooting, you have to know what is within the realm of politics and public policy and what is not. Now, obviously, everything becomes political. If there's a hurricane, it's political. If there's an earthquake, it's political. If there's disease, it's political. But there are a lot of things that God just tests us with, and you have to, again, use that balance of prudence and trust and faith in God to, to power through it. Not everything has an answer with public policy. Now, certainly, you know, there's certain research, there's vaccines, there's certain things you want to do. But then there's things that are beyond your power. But of course, what is the ultimate thing that I, I keep coming back to because it's, it's the first degree of public policy is borders. The, the, the single biggest thing, single biggest factor in driving in diseases and really any ill that we don't want, whether it's drugs or crime or gangs or, or cultural problems, is going to be through immigration. It's going to be through the border, visas. And when you're experiencing problems in any of those spheres, that has to be the first, not the last place where you look. So obviously the big news today, everyone's talking about the president's speech. He announced a shutoff of travel to Europe. Meanwhile, the Democrats are voting on a bill to end his power to shut off visas and to close borders, which, of course, as we noted all the time, they couldn't do that because his authority doesn't come from delegated statutory authority alone. It comes from his inherent Article 2 authority over foreign affairs and foreign commerce. And he could shut that down anytime he wants. But it is truly shocking how essentially what the left believes in is that you need to open up the borders even during a pandemic that they themselves are going crazy about. It's not like they're denying it. They're, they're, they're the ones saying that this is the worst thing ever. And then just throw a bunch of money at it. That, in a nutshell, describes liberalism. Now, you know my criticism. I don't think that Trump administration did this quickly enough. And to this day, I, don't, I still don't think it's sweeping enough. I think we should have done what Israel did a while ago. I think, to a large degree, this came in through us bringing in people from China and Iran who shouldn't have been coming at that time anyway. Late December, early January, we should have shut it off then when I called for the shutoff. But as I mentioned on yesterday's show, and I got confirmation of this today, what is truly shocking is how our southern border isn't shut off. I mean, you would think you wouldn't even need to ask CBP, you know, put in a media inquiry about this because, well, if we're going to suspend legal travel, you know, someone who gets a visa to come here or someone from Europe, well, certainly, I mean, it's a no-brainer, we're going to shut off illegal immigration, right? You know, this notion that you just come to our border and assert some sort of status and you get, you know, sent to ICE, but then eventually released with a notice to appear. Your court date two years from now, you live indefinitely in our country. We're certainly going to shut that down, right? No, it's not shut down. I mean, to this day. I got that confirmed. Spoke with the CBP official today, and I can confirm for you. There is no travel ban at our border. So I want to get back to the courts in a minute. But just real briefly, as you know, a few hours before this magical, toothless, 
Ninth Circuit injunction was going to go into place demanding that we bring in all the Central American caravans, the Supreme Court put a stay on it. Only Sotomayor dissented. Mentally ill, what was going on there. Now, I want to get back to the severity of what was going on there and and the lesson with the courts, but let's first just tackle what's going on here. I want you guys to remember that which we are turning people around to remain in Mexico, that's the MPP, Mexican um, uh, Migration Policy Protocols, that only applied to Central American families, okay? It doesn't apply to Mexicans. It doesn't apply to unaccompanied teens insidiously smuggled by their families from Central America. And it doesn't apply to anyone who's extracontinental. In other words, if you're not from Mexico or Central America, if you're from India, China, anywhere, I mean, they come from 100 different countries to our border, even from China, even from China, we are not turning them back. You would think like, oh my gosh, where the market shut down and colleges are shut down and everything shut down. We've never seen anything like this in our lifetime. And I, I, don't, I don't remember anything like this. Okay, whether it's overblown or not, to the extent that we're doing it, but we're doing it. But with all that happening, we will not shut down the border. I mean, I'm, I'm floored. Again, everyone's like, oh, the Supreme Court stepped in. Okay, fine. Now, mind you that had they not stepped in, we would have let in the caravans. And then you, you could imagine within 24 hours, you would have hundreds of thousands of people amassing in Mexico you know, or in Central America to come up here. Again, you look at Spanish language media. Uh, I have a listener to this show who sends me um, Spanish language media, translates it for me. There are caravans forming because I think they're starting to see the potential weakening of the policies that the that DHS put in place last year to finally stem the tide. We are not shutting it down, folks. Now, yes. Now, now they, they play this game that, oh, we're not doing catch and release anymore. Well, CBP is not doing catch and release. They give them over to ICE. But is ICE releasing them eventually? A lot of them, they are. The UAC racket is continuing. Most extracontinentals that say they have an asylum claim, we indulge the claim. The point is, we're not turning them back. Now, what I did clarify is, between because they're not doing CBP catch and release, so between the time that they come up, it took them to come up, and CBP holds them, and then gives them over to ICE, even if ICE eventually releases them, you would think it would be within, it would be beyond 14 days. But not because there's a policy in place that, hey, we're, we're going to quarantine all Chinese who come here. They are put in isolation, I'm hearing, and this is very much on deep background, I heard. They're not publicizing that, but it's not quarantine. But the point is, I mean, am I, am I the crazy one here? Wouldn't you think as a baseline, like we are doing things 50 degrees more severe than this for American citizens, right? So you would think as a baseline, you have random impoverished foreign nationals from all over the place, all sorts of health conditions, 
coming to our border, you think is an is a no brainer. Look, I mean, even if we're generally culturally open borders and we don't care about the gangs and we don't care about the drugs and we don't care about the criminal aliens. But at the very least. We would say, look, we're closed for business. At least during this uh, epidemic. I mean, wouldn't you think we wouldn't even need to think about that? But yet here we are. At this pace, we're going to have a situation where all 320 million Americans are going to be stuck in their homes. Eventually, I mean, if this continues like this. And yet. We're going to still be bringing in asylum requests. We're not going to shut that off. It's unbelievable. But I can confirm with you. At this very hour, as of midday on, on, on Thursday, even after Trump's shut off from Europe, we are not shutting off the border. It is truly, truly shocking. Folks, no vaccine could stop open borders. There is no vaccine for the mental illness of open borders. But likewise, there is no vaccine for the mental illness of judicial supremacism. So look, it could have been worse. But I really did want to find out if there is no limit to a Ninth Circuit ruling. I really wanted to find out, is DHS really going to open those borders to a rush of caravans? If the Supreme Court didn't step in amidst... uh, international pandemic. I don't think we wanted to find out the answer to that question. I guess I'm glad we didn't. But think about that for a minute. We would have allowed a Ninth Circuit to do that? Because again, you can't count on the Supreme Court every time. First of all, we shouldn't have to. We should, I mean, let's say we had five Clarence Thomases, okay? So they'd always... We could always count on them. But I mean, is that how we're going to run our government? That the Supreme Court gets to decide that? And, and, and if not for them? I mean, what if a court, what if they sue the European travel ban? Now, they're not going to do it. And you know why? It's all racial. Let's, let's face it. They're never going to have a problem with that. I mean, they're complaining about it. You're not going to find a lawsuit like you do with the border. And there's, you know, it's, an, it's obvious why. We don't have the rule of law. We have the rule of the racial pyramid. It's disgusting. But that's 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 the truth of it. I would be shocked if there's a lawsuit with this. I could be proven wrong. But the point is, it's like, I mean, are the courts going to start to take over our, you know, our Wuhan Chinese virus response? Because just remember, this was just one of many lawsuits. This is not over. What if the Supreme Court doesn't stay it? Now, a big part of the reason why they probably did was because of the fallout of this. But again, how much longer are they going to do it? You see, folks, one of the things I predicted, one of my predictions was this. I said, look, one of the many reasons you can't count on a so-called conservative Supreme Court to save you 
It's better just to go back to what is right and prudent anyway, that judicial supremacism is wholesale BS, is because even if you had solid five, a solid you know, wall of five justices, which we certainly don't, but if we are going to continue to indulge the notion the Trump administration is going to continue to halt any policy or engender a policy ordered by any district judge, any appellate judge that the Democrats choose from. No degree of Supreme Court rulings are going to are going to end that because they, they, they don't care. And you heard it here for, first, but mark my words, because I, I, we're already seeing this. I said If you ever had a scenario where, like, let's say Trump wins re-election and Ruth Bader Ginsburg retires, so they clearly get a majority and they flip her seat, and they're just going to say the Supreme Court is illegitimate, it's it's compromised, and therefore, we're just going to go to any other judge we want. And I guarantee you, Republicans and the Trump administration, they're going to indulge it. It's legitimate. How do I know this? Fox News from yesterday. Disorder in the courts. Federal judge bless Chief Justice Roberts. A federal judge leveled harsh accusations against Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts and the rest of the conservative majority, claiming that they are, quote, actively participating in undermining American democracy. By the way, folks, I love this. Like, for years... The other two independent, stronger branches of government would never question the supremacy of the Supreme Court, like their God. Yet when it comes to the one group of people that they are indeed superior to, supreme over, they're supreme over the inferior courts. It's like, hold my beer. You know, all these district judges are like, this is an illegitimate conservative Supreme Court. Screw them. We're going to do what we want. Judge Lynn Alderman or Edelman of the U.S. District Court of the Eastern District of Wisconsin, blasted the Roberts-led court in an article titled The Roberts Court's Assault on Democracy, set to be published in the Harvard Law and Policy Review. So you have an active sitting judge saying that the Supreme Chief Justice of, of, of the United States is assaulting democracy. The Roberts Court has been anything but passive, wrote Edelman was appointed to the bench by President Bill Clinton. Rather, the court's hard-right majority is actively participating in undermining American democracy. Indeed, the Roberts Court has contributed to ensuring that the political system in the U.S. pays little attention to ordinary Americans and responds only to the wishes of a relatively small number of powerful corporations and individuals. She uh, pointed to two things. First, were those dealing with what he called... um, Oh, it's a he. Lynn, okay, I thought it was a she. It's a he. Direct assaults on democracy, such as cases that affect voting rights. He said some cases have hurt minorities by weakening the Voting Rights Act. The second type of cases Edelman described was where he said the court increased the economic and political power of corporations and wealthy individuals and reduced that of ordinary Americans and entities which represent them. You know, I'm, I'm glad we actually have a judge that's saying he's worried about Americans. I mean, because all I see is they're giving standing to, uh, um, to illegal aliens. 
The zealous part partisanship of the Republicans displayed in connection with the Garland nomination, as well as judicial appointments generally reminds one of the, of nothing so much as the fire eaters, those fervent defenders of slavery who pushed the South into the civil war. He wrote, I mean, I you look, you got to give these guys credit. I mean, I mean, this is what you have on the bench. You have Ilan Omer and AOC across the bench. I've been warning you this. Now, if we would delegitimize them the same way the left delegitimizes, heck, I mean, they're delegitimizing John Roberts. This is the joke. You can never be liberal enough for them. I say this all along. Like, if you're going to, if they're going to treat a Kavanaugh like, like a Clarence Thomas, you may as well try to get a Clarence Thomas then. It's the same problem. Like, the, the left will treat Lamar Alexander and Susan Collins like a Nazi when it suits them. They'll treat them like they would Jesse Helms. So you may as well get a Jesse Helms. There's no such thing as lukewarm hell with Democrats. So you may as well embrace it fully. But this is the broader point. The left. The, okay. I'm just getting so flustered here. The same way the left fabricated this game of judicial supremacism that the other two branches don't matter and the supreme court rules over them okay that was the the game they created in the 1950s in the warren era and we've indulged it at increasingly a dangerous level throughout the decades once they saw that no longer worked for them they changed the rules so like republicans got so into the rules yes yes you're right judicial supremacism so we need to get our judges on there so they're not stupid. So if you get enough of them on there, now they're like, well, you know what? The Supreme Court is compromised. The same way Congress and the executive branch needed to be babysat by the Supreme Court. Well, now Congress, the executive branch, and the Supreme Court need to be babysat by whatever judge we pick. Heads we win, tails we win. I mean, that's always their game. But, you know, the Republican administrations in Congress will still indulge this as legitimate. I mean, it's not like, you know, let's say a case goes before this Judge Edelman in Wisconsin. And it's like they take the travel ban, let's just say. Like they take it back to court. And the judge was right. It's like, look, you know, Trump via wise Supreme Court said this, but let's face it, it's a compromised organ of the Republican Party. John Roberts is a buffoon. The Garland nomination, it's illegitimate. So therefore, you know, I'm, do, I'm putting an injunction on it. I mean, you know... I mean, we just saw it this week. You know they will listen. They'll appeal it. But pending the appeal, they will legitimize it. So you can't blame the Democrats for, for doing this. Because one illegitimate system leads to another. There's no floor to the insanity. Once you deviate from the Constitution and indulge a premise in governance that is wrong, and the other side knows you're going to acquiesce to it, They'll keep shifting the goalposts because Democrats have one rule of engagement. We win, you lose. There is no consistency. They believe in what they believe in. They're not just out for talking points. They're out for outcomes. They're out to change the world. Our side is just there for a bunch of talking points. Oh, we got some judges on the courts. Yeah, very nice, but... You're legitimizing judicial supremacism and the other side's winning anyway because they changed the rules. So watch for that very carefully. We would have had thousands pouring over our border like we saw this time last year. And we would not have stopped it despite coronavirus. 
We had to rely on the Supreme Court. That is a very, very sad state of being. Very, very sad. But anyway, let me know what you guys, uh, you know, where you want to go with this. Let me know if you have any guests you would like to hear from their perspective on coronavirus. You know, one of the things I hate about is that so many people in this business are so young. They're even younger than me. And they think they know everything about everything under the sun. I mean, you know my expertise on policy issues. Something like this comes up. I mean, this is beyond my wheelhouse. I'm not going to sit and BS about it. So, you know, if, if, if you think of people that you would like to hear of, a perspective that you think is not being heard enough in this issue, let me know. You could email me at dhorowitz at blazemedia.com. And again, this is the sort of thing we're going to discuss when we have our a written town hall in the form of our Facebook page which, uh, it's, again, I've been just been slowed down this week. Um, so we'll get back to that. But, but again, folks, it does get back to sovereignty. It's not going to solve everything. But you can't have open borders. And, and it does get back to this outsourcing. That China has been the biggest source of the epidemics in recent years. And then we bring in tons of people from the country to spread the virus. Then they go and steal our technology. And then we sell it out to them for cheap labor. And then, and then a lot of them go back home, and then the American companies have a whole cadre of workers there to go and make the stuff, so they go over there. So then our entire supply chain is there during the very epidemic that began from China. I mean, this whole thing, we need a national discussion on sovereignty and security as it relates to the supply chain. As Senator Josh Hawley uh, was talking about from day one of this, and of course... Amid all this talk, whether it's the Democrat coronavirus legislation that they're pushing in the House or whether it's the administration pushing for the stimulus and all this stuff that this Keynesian economics as if that somehow works. To just spend more money. And we don't deal with the policies. We can't have courts running our national security pandemic policies. We can't have open borders. And we can't have immigration policies that create a brain gain and a sucking sound and distorts not just our immigration system, but our labor market and outsourcing beyond what is normal and, and the natural way of doing business. And it, and it makes us so vulnerable. So anyway, that's what that I wanted to move on. <clears throat> A little bit beyond this, but again, very much connected when you're talking about sovereignty. Well, who stands for sovereignty? Almost nobody. Chip Roy, Andy Biggs. How many? Name me. Jeff Sessions. So as I was getting ready to drive to the funeral, I saw this news. And let me just tell you, I, I'm, I'm just going to tell you right here and right now. A lot of very high-ranking people that you would think would be in the know did not know about this endorsement. Which leads me to believe Jared Kushner was very much behind it. Now, I know, I know, Trump had the personal thing with him. It's personal. I get it. A lot of people will be like, well, Daniel, he recused himself. He deserved it. It was horrible. Let me just tell you something. And I know I've said this before, but it's worth repeating now that the president went and endorsed Open Borders Tuberville. 
This is about a lot more than Jeff Sessions. I don't care if your view of Sessions, and it probably ranges among those in this audience, from that he's just a pure, decent human being that is the biggest hero on immigration and crime of anyone around, or he was extremely weak attorney general and we should never elect him to anything because of, because of that. Okay, whatever, wherever your view is on that, I don't care. <clears throat> because this is not about Jeff Sessions. It's not about Alabama. It's not about Tommy Tuberville. It would be one thing if the president was out there making bang-up endorsements. I mean, all over the place, draining the swamp, kicking out Lindsey Grahams of the world, <clears throat> really doing a solid job of... Um, overturning all the rhinos, replacing them with like-minded people. And just this was too personal for him. He endorsed Sessions and, and, and he endorsed Tuberville, but he's like really good going everywhere on immigration policy. He's it's all America first. But folks, open your eyes. What's going on here? Stop focusing on the Mueller thing. Remember. Every day he's in, he endorsed against an angel mom in, in District 11 in Texas. It's every single endorsement sucks. I mean, we only have open border jerks in this in the deep south. Just this week, we had the Mississippi primary. Cindy Hyde Smith, a Democrat for her entire life. Total puke. Remember, we talked about how she voted against disclosure of rearrest rates for those let go by the First Step Act. She was one of those 18 Republicans. From Mississippi, we can't even get a law and order Republican. Total Teletubby. Tommy the Teletubby Tuberville. Tommy Teletubbyville. Yeah, Teletubbyville. Maybe that's what we'll call him. But Cindy Hyde-Smith is certainly a Teletubby. And... She won without any opposition. Why? Because the special election to fill the seat for two years. Well, Chris McDaniel, the guy who started the MAGA movement to begin with. Before Trump came around. Could have totally won. Polling did show that. Trump endorsed Cindy Hyde-Smith. Every single time. I mean, this guy has been worse for us than McConnell and, and anyone in the history of Republican politics when it comes to endorsements. And then you got to look broadly. Look at where Trump is headed on crime and immigration. No more E-Verify. Massive H-1B, massive H-2. DACA, bring in Lindsey Graham as the chief negotiator. And then on crime, of course. Like, I love all these Teletubbies. They only know what's put out in front of them. Ah, uh, Sessions, Mueller. No, <clears throat> it's much broader than that. Why do you think Jeff Sessions hung on for a full year after that? He wasn't fired right away. He was fired right after the First Step Act. Jared hates his guts. And not because of Mueller. Jared hates his guts because of his views on crime. So it's kind of death by a thousand cuts. That's what nailed him. So Trump, to begin with, was upset over the Mueller thing. And then Jared, because, again, there's plenty of deep state and shallow state jerks that remain in office to this day that did Trump in all over the place on purpose. And they remain 
Why? Because they have the backing of the establishment and McCarthy, McConnell, and Jared. Sessions believes in what you and I do. That's why he came down on him. So here's the deal. At some point, we have to believe in something. We can appreciate good things Trump has done. We need to prod him to do better things. But it's not about one man, and it should never be, whether it's Reagan, whether it's Trump, whether it's Ted Cruz, whether it's anyone. We have to have some sort of fixed set of beliefs and fixed agenda that we're striving to achieve. It can't just be a measure of who kisses Trump's ass more than the next person rhetorically in a primary. Okay, it's got to be a little bit more than that. But that's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. And as I noted, it's not even like, there would be one thing if like you had, I don't know, like another MAGA type that was very close with Trump and he runs against Sessions because he's upset about Mueller. So you're like, okay, he endorses that guy. No, it's you have never Trumper type of leftist Republicans that challenge conservative Republicans And they do it by saying, oh, that guy's not sufficiently pro-Trump. I'm pro-Trump. Meanwhile, they're both liberal and not pro-Trump. And they they get his endorsement. I mean, that's the thing. Tuberville never voted for him. Tuberville was anti-Trump. All these people are. Which brings me to to my next story. (laughs) On this show. On this show. Earlier this week. We had a candidate from New Mexico's 2nd District, Yvette Harrell, on the show. She's endorsed by Mark Meadows, who is going to be Trump's new chief of staff, endorsed by the Freedom Caucus because she's promising to join it. And she's being challenged by Claire Chase, who has the backing of McCarthy and really in the background, Elise Stefanik. And... On the show, we had her on and she really, you know, it was a long form interview. It was something that I bet Claire Chase has not done herself. And AP wrote an article, so it's all over New Mexico media, but it's elsewhere as well because it's an AP article. They wrote an article based on our interview with her. Albuquerque, New Mexico, AP. Republican, a Republican U.S. House candidate in a crucial New Mexico race said Monday the GOP controlled Congress and the Trump administration showed, quote, a lack of leadership during President Donald Trump's first two years in office. Speaking to conservative podcast host Daniel Horowitz, former state lawmaker Yvette Harrell said she felt GOP leaders in the House and Senate could have done more to push a conservative agenda from 2017 and 2018. She also faulted the Trump administration for failing to tackle issues that could have been put to bed. Harrell was responding to a question Horowitz asked about rising spending and the national debt under Trump and the Republican-controlled Congress before Democrats took over the U.S. House in 2019. Quote, I think that's the frustration of it, Harrell said. We saw a lack of leadership when we had the House and the Senate and the administration. We did absolutely nothing. And there are so many issues that could have been put to bed that we could have addressed that we haven't. Harrell said she agreed that the federal government had to address its spending under Trump. She later praised Trump for his policies. But the campaign of Claire Chase, Harrell's opponent in the Republican primary for New Mexico's southern U.S. congressional district, immediately jumped on Harrell's comments. Quote, we already knew Yvette lied about her support for Donald Trump. 
But for her to attack President Trump's conservative leadership proves she is not qualified to service in Washington, Chase campaign manager Mike Berg said. She sounds more like Nancy Pelosi than a Republican candidate for Congress. D- uh, Dakota. Yeah, yeah. So that's the end of the quote from Mike Berg. Then Dakota Partial, Harold's campaign manager, said Harold stands behind her remarks in the podcast. Event meant exactly what she said in the interview. Too many establishment Republicans in Washington refused to stand with President Trump and support his policies during the first two years in office. So, folks, this is the game they're playing, right? This is so much becoming about Trump's personality that it's counterintuitive. So someone who wants to say, look, we didn't accomplish enough of Trump's agenda because we screwed it up in the first two years, which anyone voting for Trump recognizes that, that anything good that happened was because of executive administrative policies that Congress sucked. Everyone knows that. Now, look, how much you want to blame Trump for not more aggressively vetoing and more aggressively steering and driving the legislative agenda and making demands, we could debate that. But the outcome is incontrovertible. Okay, we know they did nothing but the tax cuts. So now it's so counterintuitive that you have rhinos now defending rhinoism and saying anyone who attacks rhinoism, they're attacking Trump to confuse voters. This is the game that they're all playing. McCarthy's guys came into Mark Meadows' own district and his own um, hand-picked candidate. I mean, no one has defended the president more than Meadows. Attacked her for being a never-Trumper. And they support a candidate who's a never-Trumper. Claire Chase, I mean, she, she publicly said nasty things about Trump. I mean, this is the, it's not even like you're having people that were MAGA from day one doing this. You're having people that were both anti-Trump and they're not conservative. Attacking conservatives for not being pro-Trump enough. I mean, but, but what I'm saying is the broader problem is this is the problem when it's all about personality. I don't care who the person is. What is it we believe in and what is it we're trying to accomplish? If you have those values, anyone would understand that what we did in those first two years was horrendous. Never have we had from either party, full trifecta control and accomplishing so little legislatively through that trifecta control. That is a fact. You could say whatever you want. That is exactly why you need Trump to have a second term, but also with better members of Congress to ensure we don't repeat the mistakes of the first two years. But again, this is not about outcomes. It's about sleazy talking points. But anyway, it was just an interesting turn of events there, you know, because they know people aren't going to listen to the context. That really, she's actually more MAGA than MAGA. She's actually trying to push it. They weren't going to listen to that context. Oh, she said, like, Trump, it's Trump's fault. It's like Nancy Pelosi to believe in not giving Nancy Pelosi stuff. Here's the deal. Here's the deal, folks. Nancy Pelosi voted for all those budget bills. Every one of them. That's the joke. Elise Stefanik and Kevin McCarthy, all the people propping up candidates like Claire Chase. Okay? They supported this stuff along with Nancy Pelosi. They're the Nancy Pelosi. But they, they, they play this game. They, they played the same thing on Mo Brooks. <clears throat> Mo Brooks would have 
save the Alabama Senate seat, the last one, from, from a Democrat getting it. But they got Trump to endorse Luther Strange, and Strange attacked Mo Brooks as an ever-Trumper and did the same thing. Oh, he's like Nancy Pelosi. They put out ads and flyers. And again, people don't know the who's who and the what's what of politics. Like, oh, I don't want a Nancy Pelosi Republican. I want a Trump Republican. But it's really the Nancy Pelosi Republican on policy who's putting that stuff out. And, and they know exactly what they're doing. It's so dishonest. But anyway, um, kudos to Yvette for standing by her comments. Listen to the audio. You'll see exactly what we were talking about. Never Trump means you are for open borders. You're for what Kevin McCarthy and Elise Stefanik are for. But th th this is the whole thing. I mean, folks, if we are at a point where there is no room for, for people like Jeff Sessions in this party, and it's controlled by Elise Stefanik. If there is no room for sovereignty and law and order, but there is room for cocaine traffickers like Alice Johnson as the spokesman of the party and jailbreak and Lindsey Graham and Elise Stefanik, then count me out. Count me out of this phony movement. Friends, there is so much to catch up on. Got a lot more, but I'm having voice issues this week. I'm just extremely hoarse, so we're going to leave it at this. But I just want to close with one piece of information. I, I know someone who has firsthand knowledge of that meeting that took place in the White House with Lindsey Graham and Tom Tillis and this whole working group um, of Republicans on DACA. Here's what he texted me. Graham controlled the conversation, a one-man play in three acts. Act one, the grand visionary sketches the future for the GOP. President Trump has finally taken full control of the border, historic achievement. He's rallied the GOP to see immigration as an issue of first-order importance. Now it's time to cement his legacy and chart a new pathway for the GOP by bringing all the disparate pieces together in the form of comprehensive immigration reform. This was effectively battled by Senators Cotton, Lee, and Cruz. So kudos to Lee, I guess. He joined in with that. Graham then presented the issue deciding whether we should begin those negotiations before or after the court's DACA decision. Senators Cotton, Lee, Cruz, and Hawley did real work on this one. Cotton especially reminded the president that any DACA decision will be determined in large part by Justice Roberts, an entirely unreliable and unworkable, unknowable vote. The group of four won the question. Uh, do not do anything before DACA decision. Okay, that's when Act 2 Graham kicked in. This grand visionary made way on the stage for Tammany Hall brawler. It's a question of real politic. You want to win Arizona and save Martha? You got to give the Democrats DACA. Okay, that, that was from my source. Think about this. He nominates an open borders fool who lost against a strong Democrat candidate to go up again for the second seat. They lost Jeff Flake's seat. Now let's lose John McCain's seat. And then they, I mean, then, then they have the nerve to say you have to be even more open borders and have DACA. That's the only way to win Arizona. Not discuss everything going on at the Arizona border. The, the public health concern, the gangs, the drugs. I mean, the fact that we, you know, we had um, Sheriff Mark Lamb on the show talking about how 100 miles into the border, you have cartel scouts that we have sometimes 
um, rip crews that beat up others. And then we have to call 911 and we pay for the hospitalization of one drug cartel group. I mean, you run on that, run ads on that, on, on the on the ranchers, what they have to put up with on their property. All the shows we did last year on this. So much material. But we have Graham saying we need amnesty. Folks, we thought we were done with this. We're not done with this. We're not done with it because we have Jared Kushner. We're not done with it because we're endorsing the wrong people. There is no vaccine for the mental illness of open borders and judicial supremacism and all the other liberal ills that affect these rhino Republicans. But most importantly, you got to stay focused. We have to have a vision. And it can't be this just superficial nonsense of saying, who licks Trump's rear end more than the next person? That's not the point. If you really want to serve Trump well, you got to stick to the issues that got him elected to begin with. I'm out of time and out of steam. You could email me at dharowitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at rmconservative. I'll give you an update on the Facebook page where it is. It's just, it's just tough. I mean, it's not like I have a paid staff here. So we're trying to work out different things. Send me your ideas, comments, questions, and concerns. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you so much for listening.